This is the first day of uh, this uh, two-day September 2019 Asashin. And today we're going to be using for the text uh, Robert Aitken Roshi's Encouraging Words. So uh, if you can't, if I'm not speaking loud enough or you're losing it, uh, please raise your hand so that I can project better. Uh, sometimes my words sink into into the depths and then you can't hear. So I chose Robert Aitken because although he died in uh, 2010, the age of 93, and was a contemporary of uh, Kaplow Roshi, he's a man of our time because of his deep concern with social action, justice, peace, um, and also actually because of his involvement um, in exposing the egregious uh, sexual exploits of uh, Edo Shimano Roshi of the uh, Daibosatsu Center in um, the Catskills. He actually, Edo was thrown out of the Hawaii Zen Center, which was Robert Aitken's center for such um, inappropriate behavior in 1964. But it wasn't till much later that, um, unfortunately, he continued his downward passage. Um, Aitken Roshi, in one of his final interviews, when he was probably um, already 93, not, not inhibited at all, He called him a crook. Um, But his deepest work was with the Buddhist, helping to found the Buddhist Peace Fellowship along with Chitnyat Han, Gary Snyder, uh, Nelson Foster, and others. And that movement continues to this day. So he is a man of our time, but he's also a bridge between East and West because he grew up in Hawaii from the age of five. And, of course, he was um, imprisoned. He went to Guam on a job when he was in his early 20s. And the day after Pearl Harbor, which was the bombing of Pearl Harbor, which brought America into the Second World War, he was um, interned then in various Japanese uh, prison camps. So his his lifetime experience um, definitely spoke to his approach to Zen, which was very much of the heart, uh, very much accommodating to conditions and so forth. But I thought I might read Gary Snyder, who was, for those of you way too young to probably even have him flash across your radar, but um, Gary Snyder was a poet of the beat generation, an environmental activist, and very uh, deeply interested in ecology. He also was a scholar of ancient Chinese and and modern Japanese. And so he writes the foreword to Aitken's book, Aitken Roshi's book, Taking the Path of Zen. So I'll just read this because I think it's helpful. Robert Aitken is a true American Thera elder, old teacher, Roshi. Raised in Hawaii, he first came to Zen in a prison camp in Japan during World War II. As a young construction worker on Guam, he had been captured and interned as a civilian 
and a guard who learned of his interest in haiku lent him R.H. Blythe's Zen in English Literature. Later, Mr. Blythe was also placed in the camp and Aitken began the first of what would be several powerful apprenticeships. After repatriation at the end of the war, he worked in Southern California and sat with Nyogen Sensaki, our most widely shared American Zen ancestor. Over 40 years, he maintained his practice while living the life of family, universities, and jobs. Another, you know, parallel for lay practitioners like most of the people here who have families, jobs, and other things outside uh, formal training. He made several t- trips to Japan where he studied with Nakagawa, Soen Roshi, and Yasutani Roshi, who of course was in our lineage too. Uh, they founded the Diamond Sangha in Hawaii with, along with his wife, Anne, and they made a number of further trips to Japan to study. He received permission to teach in 1974, but he actually got permission to uh, start teaching t- nine years earlier than that. But Soen Roshi, although he passed him on his realization, he did not feel it was wide enough to um, to give him the, the transmission, teacher transmission. So it was then a further nine years of study, um, practice actually, not study, before he became a formal teacher. This is so important. People in our tradition tend to just be um, focused on getting through. I don't think that word should actually be used, getting through. It's a it's uh, this process of our coming to understand the great way. It's a lifetime. It's uh, an unfolding. And uh, realizations along the way are, are small glimpses of this indescribable um, wonder. Um, so we should all have that in mind. The process of, of, of awakening is, is ongoing and never stops. And in fact, the most important work that a practitioner of Zen needs to do is done after that first glimpse, building the mind, build, creating a person of integrity and character and compassion and love towards all beings. So we need to bear that in mind. Zen Buddhism, this is Gary again, is one path among many, and the first intention here is to help one choose the right path for oneself, Buddhist or other. In this spirit, the fundamentals of posture, breath, and attitude are presented, this is in this book, Taking the Path of Zen, without theology or mythology. And it often comes as a surprise to those whose image of Zen is only of spontaneity and creativity to learn of its hard-working orderliness attention to sharpened knives and swept floors, and the demand that one be on time. Personal commitment and free, strong choice become a center of this practice, rather than dependent devotion to a guru figure or indulgence in half-grasped, fancy spiritual rhetoric. The Buddhist world is experiencing a great awakening. One of the changes comes from our modern Occidental sense of the natural validity of family life as part of the context of practice. And it's exciting to see lay teachers, contemporary Vimalakirtis, who can bring the intensity of monkish training halls out to lay centers, which in turn become a source of sanity, lucidity, 
and good cooking to the daily life of neighborhoods and communities. The Zen path is for anyone, lay or priest, male or female, who is drawn to it. Robert Aitken has long been known for his strong feelings about militarism and war. We cannot dodge the magnitude of the problems confronting the planet, environmental, social, total. The careful walk he takes us through the ten grave precepts delivers us to the very place where changing ourselves and the world begins. Without blame or crippling regret, this approach liberates us to begin a work that is both individual and ultimately all-embracing. Like an old handmade canoe, Nordic ski, or recurved bow, this guidebook is made with great skill and care, using easily available materials, light and flexible, uniquely appropriate to the task. I think we can all share in the um, light and flexible, especially in these um, angst times. How do we maintain light and flexible. The qualities of the wood that go into being light and flexible. The long years of maturing as a tree before it's cut down to make a canoe or a ski or a bow. And Gary concludes with a little poem made by Naneo Sakaki, who says, Farming is in the ancient way, singing with coyote, singing against nuclear war. I'll never be tired of life. All of us together, then, trying to follow the way in an age of potential world holocaust is our joint spirited venture, our burden and our joy. And Robert Aitken Roshi is giving us this really big rock drenched with rain that helps mark the way. So now to encouraging words. Um, Zen Buddhist teaching for Western students. And these were a series of talks he gave in a seven-day sashin, so some are appropriate um, to that longer effort, but there's enough in here, I think, that we can get out of it to help us in this shorter version. He starts, We are lay disciples of the Buddha Shakyamuni. He felt that in order to meet the Tathagata, that means the Buddha, you must be a monk. But this idea is disproved by the lives of Vimalakirti, the layman Pang, Dr. Suzuki, and the many wise tea women, nameless but not forgotten in Zen Buddhist history. Like those great lay people in our lineage, we are challenged to fold the intensive practice of the monk into our daily lives. In a very real sense, we have an advantage over the monks. The world is in our face all day long, and even during Sashin, we know it is only a telephone call away. That call can come at any moment. So, let us use our time. The old, he talks in a chapter called Coming Home. 
The old-fashioned word for a psychiatrist was alienist, the one who treats aliens. Zen practice is rather different from psychiatry, but its purpose is the same. The alien suffers from dukkha, the anguish of feeling displaced, and as the Buddha said, dukkha is everywhere. It is the disease we have in common. I think the word anguish uh, is probably a very deep um, word for suffering. With suffering, there is a sense of forbearance and holding, um, enduring, but in anguish, there's just the pain, just the, uh, well, just the pain. Zazen seems difficult at first, for you are making yourself do it. Take heart, it will find its own hands and feet. So when Zenji said, Zazen is not a difficult task, it is a way to lead you to your long lost home. And some of you come from far away, but you've joined in as though you were coming home. You have given up important study time, career time, family time, and recreation time to make this zendo your life center for the days you are here. We sit with Buddha Shakyamuni beneath his tree with his succeeding teachers and with all those who devoted themselves to the Buddha Dharma. This is his zendo, and we, you know that zendo is a translation of Bodhimanda, the spot or place of enlightenment beneath the tree. Each of us on our cushion is the Bodhimanda. Each of our bodies is the Bodhimanda. In Sashin, you touch the mind, that is, you touch the place where there is no coming or going. In a very real sense, Zen Buddhist practice has no progression. This breath moment does not come from anywhere, and it has no tale of association. It is the Koko-an temple, it is the Chapin Mill temple, the temple right here. You are Chapin Mill temple, the temple right here. So settle into your breath counting practice, settle into your mu or koan right here. Someone asked me, what is the most important matter? I answered, intimacy. Intimacy is a step closer to the heart of things than Zen Buddhism itself. What is Zen after all? It is just a word to describe coming home. Come home with your mu, with your hu, with whatever your practice is, and you can forget about Zen. Everyone longs to return home and find warmth and renewal. When the crickets call, return to the practice and sit there. When the train goes by, return to the practice and stay there. Mu is not just one option among many which you select. Let all the options go and sink into it. Make it your home more and more intimately. Zazen is not a practice of isolation. It's not a sensory deprivation chamber. Speculation, planning, remembering and fantasizing 
These are the things that deprive you as you sit there on your cushions. Everything depends upon everything else. This is called mutual interdependence or dependent arising. For our purpose, it means that each of us is a teacher supporting everyone else, and each of us is a student being supported by everyone else. Let's sit in that spirit. The sound of the wind and the songs of birds are essential elements of zazen, just as essential as correct posture. When the sounds die down, the silence takes their place. But if sounds and silence are missing, then you are lost in thoughts and your practice is stalling. Let sounds and silence sustain you as you face your koan or your practice. This is really just um, turning away from thoughts over and over, but maintaining your awareness the whole time. When we lose our awareness, um then then we're lost in in just mind confusion when hakuin zenji said that this <clears throat> very place is the lotus land or this very is And this very body is the body of Buddha. He was speaking about intimacy, the imperative of our practice. This very place is the lotus land, means you are intimate with the flowers, with the whole environment. And this very body, the Buddha, means you are truly intimate with yourself. Like the call of the dove, each point in your breath-counting sequence, each moo, each who, each what, is even closer than your hands and feet. An incident can be instructive or disruptive, depending largely on the attitude we bring to it. If you are walking through a familiar room in complete darkness, you may bump into a table or a chair. With one kind of attitude, you curse. With another, you say, oh, There's the table, there's the chair, now I know the way. The song of the thrush and the cry of the crickets, the sounds of people coming in or going out, these can be instructive or disruptive depending on how open you are to guidance. I hope you can respond, oh, now I know the way. It's another very famous um, Zen pointer that talks about... um, if you are if you are on the uh, on a lake and you're rowing your boat and you bump into another boat your first instinct is to curse and say why don't you look where you're going but then you see the boat is empty and you just laugh at yourself or and you just drop it you go on but most of us when we bump into each other in that way uh, we're not empty we react, we get angry, or we get upset, or we carry um, the injury for days or weeks or months or maybe just five minutes. But this idea of empty boat um, is it's a good one.
The world of hard definitions is not the world of Zazen. The bird calls Mu, and the wind blows Mu. How do you slip into this dream? When you focus altogether on Mu, your senses are naturally open, and you'll find yourself in the fundamental harmony. In other words, you're not closing yourself off. You're not um, trying to um, eliminate sensations and sounds and things like that. Why is it that the sound of the crickets goes right through? Why is it the song of the bird goes right through? Why do you feel more and more intimate with, with your practice? Because it really happens. This is what liberates you. I have been reflecting on the implications of intimacy. One is gentleness with yourself and with others. Another is openness to yourself and to others. Still another is openness to your practice, to yourself practicing. We are not a culture that's naturally very uh, forgiving of ourselves. Um, We have to learn this way of responding and being. Um, But it's if we can't be kind to ourselves, really we can't express that same thing to others. So it's worth spending time being gentle with oneself. There's a whole movement now, uh, mindful self-compassion, which has really helped in so many uh, workplaces, uh, in sanghas too, learning to forgive ourselves, to to accept who we are, um, and to be gentle with that. However, you know, in our practice, we also have to be strong. It doesn't mean... It's not something weak, it's something powerful, too. And she says here, there's just a tiny step from distraction to attention. So one minute, you're paying attention, you're aware, the next minute, gone. And so... um, have to keep taking that step again and again. Distracted, back to attention. Attention is everything. And the sounds, the crickets, they help us with that. You suddenly notice the cricket. Oh, I'm aware again. Now I go back to my practice. The old teachers have said, you are born alone, you practice alone, and you die alone. And yet the whole universe groans and travails together, all seeking true nature. Settle into this universal practice. Zazen is very difficult when you try to focus on on the koan or on the breath practice in the context of fighting your thoughts. 
In that realm, practice seems just one option among many. It seems very limited in the presence of so many other engaging possibilities. Please don't make it hard for yourself in this way. Listen to the silence. Persevere and you will find it is the only option. Not limited at all, but including everything. talks then, he says, I hope you will not be preoccupied with difficulties. Everybody is in a particular condition at each moment. Female, male, old, young, transgender. Some are sitting in full lotus. Some are in half lotus. Some are using a bench or a chair. Some are distracted by thoughts. Some are tired or angry. Legs and backs can hurt from extended sitting. Long hidden worries and doubts can appear and the difficulty of staying quiet and focused can be quite daunting. How to handle condition is one of the most difficult questions that can arise in Zazen. And then he talks a little bit about pain. I think everyone here understands how to, you know, how to deal with that. Um, there are several things he says I want to say about pain. The first is, the purpose of Sashin is not to turn out crippled samurai. Please take note. <laughs> if you reach a certain point of pain, then you should sit on a bench or in a chair. If you were born lazy, I would say to you, sit through your pain. But I know you are not lazy. There are chairs in the alcoves. Please use them. Sit there for one block of Zazen, and then, if you wish, return to your cushion for the next, or sit there for the rest of Sashin. I sat my first several Sashins in a chair, as indeed did Kapla Roshi, from beginning to end. You will not find quite the measure of stability on a bench or in a chair that you might find on cushions, but there is a trade-off. Even in a chair, you can touch the mind. Don't let pride get in your way. Sometimes you may find that you are creating pain by avoiding it. If you try to lift yourself somehow to avoid the pain in your knees or ankles, you create tension that makes the pain much worse. When you settle into it, you can actually settle through it, and the pain can dissipate. Tomorrow, maybe, you will get your second wind and will be able to relax naturally, and then the pain will go away. You are always in a certain condition, sometimes healthy, sometimes toxic, sometimes refreshed, sometimes stale, sometimes comfortable, and sometimes uncomfortable. You are always indoors, so to speak. You may be in a palace, or you may be in a prison, but even in prison, you can practice. You are your own ashram. Practice there where you are. In your zazen, you might encounter a feeling of unusual sensitivity or of unusual transparency, or you might experience fear. Walk right through these conditions. They can be very promising, but not if you focus on them. So I think um, it's often said by Roshi, and I know by I know Wayman said this often. You have to feel the pain of whatever you're experiencing. You can't push it away. Um, you you just um, have to be with it. And um, curiously enough, just noticing something, um, even noticing your thoughts, uh, they lose their power.
This is for people who've been practicing a long time more. It occurs to me that some people might slow up their practice by thinking, I want realization. Zazen is like all other human pursuits in its requirement that you forget yourself in the practice, in devotion to your task. If you have attainment foremost in your mind, then whatever your endeavor, you will end up being unnatural and awkward. That's true in sport too. I mean, the people who uh, are excel in their in whatever they're doing, they're not thinking about getting better when they're really performing. They're completely um, in the music or in the execution of the of the throwing the ball or whatever it is. Um, this deep concentration, um, it it doesn't have. When you're into something else, you're not thinking about yourself. Most of the time, most of us are thinking about ourselves. You know, it's just the human condition. But when you're totally, if you're greeting another person and you totally greet them, where's yourself? That's no self. When you totally hear the sound of the bird, you're one with it, that is you but not a self-view apart from it. Everything about our practice is intimacy, getting to be at one with. Try being more impersonal. Attention is your instrument. Use your instrument of attention to its fullest capacity. Forget everything else. When your sashin has matured, you might feel, oh, my zazen is pretty good. But remember what it is that has kept the Buddha Dharma a living stream down through the centuries, the spirit of not yet, not enough, not enough yet. Realization takes only a moment, but it requires diligent attention to come upon that moment. There is only one requisite, remember to practice. Remembering to practice is right recollection. But this is not a matter of moving from one thing to another. In other words, it's not sequential. It is this very moment. Many people think of Zazen practice as a sequential development, and on a couple of occasions recently I have encountered the expression to pass the koan. I don't think I have ever used that expression, but it seems to be floating around anyway. In fact, I often quote a colleague who says, I've never passed Mu. I too have never passed Mu, and the people working on other koans too seem caught up in sequence, on to the next one and the next. I may be responsible for this. If so, I take it all back. It was quite a revelation to me to work with the people in Argentina who were doing koan study. They would stop with each koan, and then, after doing well, they would come back the next time and say, "Mm, I didn't go on to the next koan. I'd like to take up the last one again. And they would have some question. This was very heartening for me. So please let yourselves linger with your koan. Um, we had uh, a mindful self-compassion 
um, seminar here was put on by uh, University of California, San Diego, and they invited the two most uh, prominent teachers currently, uh, Chris Germa and um, Kristen Neff, to be the moderators for this conference. And at this conference, there was um, uh, a master from, actually from Korea, from, I, I'm not sure whether he was from... Um, where he was from in Korea. Anyway, he was an older man in his 80s. Uh, so cheerful, so friendly, so present. I mean, he, he wore his gray suit, little gray suit with a, a top and a, a pair of pants and just merged with everybody. But he always had people close to him who obviously were naturally drawn to him. And um, I, I think it was Wayman drove him to the airport and asked him, what practice do you use in your monastery? And he said, well, moo. And he said, uh, do you do anything else? No, uh, we just stay with moo for our life. That's how important it is. That's how, I mean, moo is our true nature. So how could we ever exhaust it? How could we ever really um, just, you know, we can just marvel and and get deeper and deeper and make it a lifetime. Getting through is not, um, it's not the goal. There are no goals in this practice, really. There are not. And you know what? I think I'm tired of my words. So, not tired of Aitken's words, but I think we will stop here now and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain.